Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. So this is Pentecost the day in which the Holy Spirit fell upon the early church like Niagara Falls. It was a day that changed history, a day that actually has changed us. There are many things you could say about the Holy Spirit. You could talk about the long history of the Holy Spirit throughout Scripture, beginning in the Old Testament, beginning in Genesis chapter 1. You could talk about the power of the Holy Spirit, how the Spirit invigorates people for new adventures. You could talk about the gifts of the Holy Spirit and the unique capacities that he begins to birth within us. And you could talk about the fruit of the Spirit, that is the results of a Spirit-saturated life. And all of those things have their day in court. You know, All of those things should have a voice at some point. Um, but today I want to speak about the Holy Spirit as a magnetic personality, that Pentecost was a magnetic event, a supercharged event, an event that led to a profound and new attraction to God because of the outpouring of the Spirit. And you know, there are many magnetic events, like sociological magnetic events that draw people together in new and unexpected ways. Uh, Weddings do this. Funerals do this. I remember uh, going to a, a funeral a few years ago in which I got to see relatives that I hadn't seen in 15 years. It brought us all together. Yes, in grief, but it brought us all together. Uh, sporting events bring people together. Bruce Springsteen concerts always bring people together, and it's great. It is. Um, and what I learned by marrying into an Italian family is that garlic can bring people together. <laughs> it does. I mean, you mix like garlic and tomatoes and cheese, and all of a sudden you have um, you have a big family reunion. And more than that, what's great is you know I'm sort of a re- repressive, repressed German, right? Yeah. And I felt like I was part of the family because I like to eat those things, right? So the the food was like a a great spiritual canopy that covered us all and brought us all together in one in one group. Uh and and all the more, all the more do we recognize the Holy Spirit's capacity to bring to us a new magnetism, uh, a drawing forth that attracts people, entices people of various histories and ages and sizes and skin tones and skill sets and uh, and self understandings, and we're all coming together. We're all coming together, drawn by this great magnetic power. And uh, in his first letter to the church in Corinth, Paul addresses the subject of the Spirit. You know, because he's lived with the Spirit for a long time by now. I mean, the Spirit's been a very powerful presence in Paul's life for for many years, well over a decade. And he's given a lot of thought to this. And he's processing the great event of Pentecost that happened you know, shortly after Jesus' ascension. And so he's giving us his very mature thoughts about the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit does and how the Holy Spirit engages with us. So I want to only speak about two verses of this passage because it's so rich, but I'd like to do them justice at least. So the two verses are verses 12 and 13, 12 and 13, in which I'm going to be speaking about the many and the one, the many and the one, because those are the repeated phrases within this passage. And so he's emphasizing something and repeating something for emphasis sake because he wants us to pay attention to it. So let me speak about the many and the one. 
Now, we'll begin with the many, and I want you to notice the language of variety here, of distinctives. This is what it says, note the, the language of the many. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Now the immediate context, which was read this morning, is important to note. He is here describing a variety of gifts that are given to different people, and he says not all of you are going to have the same disposition, the same gifting, the same kind of talents from heaven that they are distributed unevenly and deliberately unevenly. And so you don't need to be jealous or clamor for something that you don't have because you have your own unique skill set. You have your own unique contribution, your own unique voice. Uh, and then he talks about um, the fact that we are many members of the body. He repeats that twice in verse uh, 12 and 13. Many members of the body. Remember, the body is the image that Paul comes back to a lot within his letters. He likens the church to a, to a human form and says, you know, everybody has a distinct part, is represented by a distinct part of that body. And it's a good thing that the body is not just a kidney, right? Or an eyeball or a hand, but that the body has to have differentiation in order to function as a body. And that's what you are. You're all differing members, many members of that body. Uh, and, and it's a wonderful thing that we're not alike in all ways, right? Uh, but he's, he goes deeper than that about the manyness, about the manyness. He goes deeper. He says it's not only your skill sets. You're even more divergent than your skill sets. You're more divergent based on your race, and you're more divergent based on your socioeconomic uh, you know, dynamic. He says that here. He says that, the, that we who are the many are, are Jews and Greeks, slaves and free. Now, that we know that language, right? There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, all are one in Christ Jesus. But I think we, we uh, skip past those comments from Paul at our, at our peril because he's actually saying something quite revolutionary that almost nobody believed in the first century. That, that, that our Jewishness or our Greekness is not the principal thing about us, that our slaveness or our freeness isn't the most important thing about us, that's insane to think. Because remember, think just, for example, about the dynamic between the Jews and the Greeks. They have different histories, different cultural narratives, different languages, different skin tones, different, uh, different artistic expressions. These are very different people. And they also experienced a time of great uh, strife. They were enemies. 200 years before Paul wrote these words, the Greeks had taken over the land of Judea, and there was a, a maniacal monarch named Antiochus Epiphanes who ordered that a pig, right, an unclean animal within Judaism, would be taken to the altar of God and ripped apart so that the blood would contaminate the holy of holies. He also forced Jewish people to eat unclean animals and to make themselves ritualistically unclean. They were eventually chased out by the Maccabean revolt, but there was bad blood because of that very symbolic action, and that bad blood was still in the system when Paul was writing these words. They remembered their history. They knew 
about the violence that had occurred between these cultures. And now Paul is saying, your Jewishness or your Greekness is not the most important thing. Not anymore. Additionally, he talks about people that were slaves and free, you know, people who lived with uncomfortable economic and social and mobile differences, people that were the top of the heap or the bottom of the barrel. And he said, yes, those things that define our world, those things that define so much of our day-to-day lives do not define you in Christ Jesus. There is something baser to you, more important and impressive about you than if you're regarded as a slave or as a free person. Uh, and so this is the manyness that he's talking about, all of these differences. Um, and, and I think it's important for us to recognize our manyness. It's obvious, but it's important to underscore the point that you know your fingerprints are all your own. That's why if you ever get in trouble, they can trace you and find where you are, right? Um, your story is all your own. Your perspective is your own. And isn't it great, too, that you have people in your lives that are different than you? that are not a carbon copy of your ideas and impulses and instincts. Isn't it good that you're different from me and I'm different from you? Because then we can learn from each other. Because everybody has so many blind spots. Um, People say, you know, I really want to marry somebody with whom I'm compatible. Do you think that's important? And I always say, well, it depends on what you mean by compatible. I mean, I think there are some foundational things that you ought to have in common. But I also think it's really good if you're dispositionally different because you'll end up broadening the other person and giving them a sort of a bigger humanity. All the married couples in the room right now are like hugging each other, and you're like, yes, I still love you. I know you're different. Uh, Yeah, it's good. It's sweet. Um, But you see what happens in a fallen world is that manyness is weaponized. Manyness isn't just appreciated, but it becomes weaponized, and so we, we fracture into little tribes and little ideologies or the worship of the individual self or the impulses of the self. Well, this was the crisis in Corinth that Paul is addressing. The crisis was social disharmony, competition, comparisons, jealousy, backbiting. It was a mess, a sociological disaster. And Paul's point by talking about the manyness of the many members in one body is to say, look, the Spirit is going to redeem your manyness. The Holy Spirit is going to redeem the differentiation among you, not by eradicating it, but by securing it in a stronger oneness. You need to have a oneness in order to have a healthy manyness, if I can put it that way. And then he gets into the oneness. And he, he, notice the language of unity as I reread the passage. This is verses 12 and 13 again. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Notice that there's a unity here. There are two kinds of unity here. There's a vertical unity having to do with God and a horizontal unity having to do with people. It's sociological. The vertical unity with God is really important. He says you were all baptized or you were all given to one spirit, not several but one spirit. Now, that's quite something to say within a Greek culture, because Corinth was, uh, you know, was deeply influenced by Greek culture and Greek religion, in which there were many spirits. In fact, your own family could have its unique uh, uh, spirit to which it was uh, uh, devoted. But he says, no, 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 it's all one spirit, one spirit. And he mentions that one spirit two times. What he's saying is that you know, every Christian with great hair 
and every Christian who wished that he had great hair, uh, every Christian who was six foot two, and every Christian who was four foot eight, every accountant, every museum curator, every teetotaling Christian, and every Christian who likes a martini, um, you all encounter the same spirit, regardless of your givens. And what does this spirit do? This is really interesting language. What does the one spirit do? Well, he says that we were all baptized by that spirit into one body. So the spirit baptizes us, which is a very interesting phenomenon. And it goes back to a promise give to, given by John the Baptist. John the Baptist was this wild man who was uh, you know, uh, immersing people in the River Jordan. But he said that what he gave in the river was not enough. He said that there would be a a great king to come who would baptize not with water, but with the Holy Spirit, right? And now Paul is seeing that that happens, that people are now being baptized in God, in the Holy Spirit. Um, And we're baptized in one body. And he says that every Christian has been baptized in the Spirit. And that's really important for us to remember, because I think there are some well-intentioned Christian groups who have made a, a, a disconnect in the body by saying there are some Christians who have Jesus, but then there are other Christians who have an extra thing going on. They have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which manifests itself in speaking in tongues. You've heard, yeah, you've heard this? Yeah, well, the problem with that is Paul says in Galatians, but also here that we've all been baptized in the same Spirit, meaning that every Christian you know has the Holy Spirit because they've been baptized in the Spirit. Where people get confused is sometimes they have later developments within their spiritual life that are very important. We call those fillings. That's a filling of the Spirit. That's different than the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Fillings can happen time and time again. We're to pray for those sorts of things. But you have all been baptized in the same Spirit, is what Paul's saying here. Um, and so we're all on the same level. Is what, that's the claim. We're all one body. We're all on the same level. But then he says something interesting, too. Not only, uh, he uses two water metaphors, right, or two at least liquid images. We've been baptized in the Spirit. And then he says we drink the Spirit. And that's a strange turn of phrase. We drink the spirit. We guzzle the spirit. Uh, He says that we were all made to drink of one spirit. Now, why is he using this imagery? Well, some people believe it's an oblique reference to the two sacraments, right? Of baptism, being immersed in the spirit, and then drinking, as in drinking uh, the wine of communion. At least that's maybe in the the background. Uh, And and, and that's not an illogical argument because Paul writes a lot, a lot about baptism and communion in 1 Corinthians. In fact, he writes more about it there than nearly anywhere else. Um, But the point is this. I think he's saying that there's this unity that we have with God because of the Spirit. We are surrounded like baptismal water by the Spirit. And the Spirit lives internally within, like we're drinking the Spirit. Um, The New Testament uses this imagery sometimes. It talks about us being in Christ, because Christ is bigger than us, and we're like a little part of that. And it also talks about Christ being in us, like he's living within, internally. Christ in you, the hope of glory, yes? And so that's the conception, that we have now been surrounded by and, and inculcated with God, that God is now totally bonded to you. God is close to you. Um, uh, and this, this isn't necessarily always a feeling. It's a state and status. This is how God now engages with us, sees us, relates to us with this new status. The Holy Spirit has established a magnetic bond with God and us. The Holy Spirit, in other words, gives us a new mineral quality. You know, when we were outside of Christ, we were like aluminum. You know, aluminum doesn't react to magnets. It doesn't do anything. But now we have iron in the system, and now we're like drawn. We're like attracted back to God, 
That's what the Holy Spirit does. So there's a vertical unity with God, but there's also then, based on that vertical unity, a horizontal or sociological unity whereby very different, even divergent people and groups become bonded for life. They become one body. This, again, it's a unique and fascinating and beautiful and difficult idea that people of various races and languages and histories and psychologies can all be brought together. I mean, that's madness. Nobody tries that. It's just too dangerous. It creates too many problems. And yet this is the project of the Holy Spirit, of bringing us all together in this way, into one body. And this unity, of course, was seen in Jesus. What did Jesus do? I mean, within his own ministry, he stayed mostly in his own homeland, but he collected a bunch of Jewish rag, rag, you know, ragamuffins and freak shows and, and paraded around the countryside with them, bringing life into their lives. And that impulse is increased on the day of Pentecost where all these various Jewish groups from all over the Roman world came into Jerusalem for the festival and then heard about the gospel in their own native languages. And it increases even further by now the gospel landing in Corinth. Now not Jews that were traveling from all over the world to Israel, people who had never heard of the God of Abraham at all. Now the gospel is in Gentile territory, uh, and, and, and we're all one body. The people living in Jerusalem and the people living in Spain, they're all connected. They're actually closer, the people living in Spain and the people in, living in Jerusalem, sometimes than their own biological families, because we're connected into this new body. And so we have a new kingdom with new subjects under the new rule of a newly revealed spirit creating a new humanity. That's what you are. You may feel that certain days. You may feel that less on other days. But that is your new status in Christ. You know, um, many gatherings and institutions can create a, some degree of horizontal unity. I mentioned some of these before. A wedding can create a beautiful moment of unity. A marriage, a lifelong marriage, creates a beautiful sociological unity. A meatloaf concert certainly creates a wonderful sense of enduring unity. Um, a particular political cause can create unity for a time. Even Italian food can create unity. But here's the problem or the limitation with all of those forms of horizontal unity. The magnetism of those moments is very time-bound. Very time-bound. Marriage, even if it's wonderful, is still time-bound until death do us part because death does create a parting. Sometimes that magnetism is more emotionally bound, like at a consort, or given to corruption, like politics, or like Italian food, that unity is, is given to the effects of digestion. Uh, what the Holy Spirit does, friends, is create a more powerful unity, a more powerful unity based on the bedrock of being, because it's not based on a situation or a human relationship or some sort of cause or some sort of powerful idea or figure or book. Instead, our unity is based on the ground of being. Our unity is based or sourced in God himself, uh, the God that pervades the world and has manifested his own self in his own son. And this by necessity, diminishes all other social distinctions, neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. Uh, and so this is why we're together today, because the Spirit has given us a revelation. 
we've all experienced a common crisis that is our self-sabotage that we call sin, um, and we've experienced a Christ who has wide open arms for sinners. We are all people who need the gospel, and the Spirit is the one who grounds us in that universalizing gospel. So this is Pentecost. That's the magnetism of the Holy Spirit, where he takes manyness and connects it to oneness. And friends, I want to tell you that this is a tell. Some people ask me, how do you really know when the Spirit is active in your life? I mean, how do you know when the Spirit is having sway? And I say, well, there are a lot of tells, but here's one of them. I think it's a really central one. Um, Are you being drawn toward God manifested in Christ? And are you being drawn to all of those people who are connected to that same Christ? Are you being drawn toward them rather than repelled from them? Because we were created for that magnetic attraction, and the Holy Spirit is here to restore that magnetic attraction and to lure us toward Christ and toward the people of Christ. And so this is my concluding word. This is my concluding word, is that we need Pentecost now like more than ever. Like we really do. We are in a a time of such profound antagonism and division and hostility and anger and adolescent sublimated rage that that has yet to meet a psychoanalyst, right? Um, We need the magnetic spirit of God to do something, to really work a miracle. And I mean that. I'm not being metaphorical. uh, To work a miracle within. And so I'm offering you this encouraging exhortation from St. Paul, but not from our passage, but from a similar passage in Ephesians 4. Some of you know these words, so I'm going to repeat it twice. Paul writes there, in thematic connection with what he wrote in our passage today, make every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit. Make every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit. Every effort. The Greek means every effort. And, um, and yeah, I know. meaning like everything you could possibly do to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace the magnetism of the spirit. There are forces that destroy magnetism. And I mean that quite literally. There are some things that destroy the magnetism of actual magnets. And they are heat and pressure. If you heat a magnet hot enough, the magnetic, magnetic forces within it will die. If you hammer a magnet hard enough, the physical vibrations will demagnetize a magnet. Heat and pressure. I can think of... No greater words to summarize the existential feeling of 2020 and 2021. We have been assaulted by pandemics, politics, and personalities. And through these dynamics, the zeitgeist, or the spirit of the age, seeks to unmake the Holy Spirit's work, unmake Pentecost, to oppose the unity that the Holy Spirit is intending to create and even to create division amongst humanity and also within the body of Christ. Now, you may remember the uh, novella, The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. There's a, a, a wonderful scene, in, I believe the novel open, novella opens with it, which is a glimpse of hell, which is this dark kind of burned over district, this uh, gray town, but it's an empty town because nobody can stand each other. So they all move thousands of miles away from each other. And somebody was at one time um, passing by Napoleon's chateau in the middle of nowhere. And he just saw Napoleon 
pacing back and forth, muttering to himself, it was my general's fault. It was Josephine's fault. It was everyone else's fault. Um, But it's a fascinating glimpse into hell. People that distance themselves from each other and judge each other into oblivion. Um, So I had a, a friend who was away from the church for quite some time, but after COVID started to wane, he and his family began to uh, visit different churches in a very pleasant and posh and bougie part of Virginia. And uh, they, they went there with their children that were sort of like not like uh, ideally behaved. I mean, uh, my, my kids are, um, uh, are, are perfect because they're minister's kids, and we know how that always works out. Um, um, but they, they didn't have that divine situation and so so they were like getting their kids and they're they're it's like they're all chomping on gum and their hair is crazy and they're like they're they're um in worship and barely keeping sanity as they're trying to monitor their children's behavior and then after worship they were greeted by another young couple with children and they got to talking and after a while uh they asked my friend so um what do you do about your kids education and, uh, and they said, oh, we send them to the public school here. And the faces of the other couple got totally gray, like gray, gray. And nervously, my friends asked, well, what about you? What about your kids? And they said, well, we homeschool, of course. <laughs> uh, and then the schoolers walked away without even saying a sayonara. Um, this departure expressed sort of a, a lack of warmth, if you will, a lack of bonding or connection. It was a way that this other couple could say, oh, I didn't know I was better than you. <laughs> Unlike you, we love our children <laughs> and don't want to send them into the cesspool of Satan. Um, I am here not critiquing any form of education. I don't care what you do. Um, Monique and I have done all three, and it's been Fascinating, right? From everything from public school to private school to to um, homeschooling, and uh, and so if you want to judge me, that's fine. Um, I can take it. But but the point is, I don't care about that so much. I care about the attitude. The attitude is rancid and horrid. There's something wicked about that, about that kind of judgment, about that kind of litmus test. And I'm mentioning a non-COVID example on purpose because I'm tired of talking about COVID, but I'm wondering within our COVID season, have you ever felt self-assured or self-righteous and acted out of that feeling? Has your mouth been a spigot for the nuclear waste of gossip about somebody who differs from you? Have you assumed, assumed the worst about a colleague rather than the best? Have you made judgmental associations about people like the following? They clearly don't care about the science. They are living in constant fear. They are sheeple rather than people following the dictates of whomever. They don't care at all about people's broader needs other than physical health. Can you believe they went to a party without their second Pfizer shot, etc.? Um, or have you ever written a terrible accusing email to somebody else in this room, somebody that you're supposed to be a sibling in Christ with, Um, an email, by the way, that Jesus would never have typed in a billion years, but you felt justified because you felt strongly about something. Are we the elder brother in our own sick parable? Well, these things, friends, are sins against the Holy Spirit. They are sins against our family of Christ. They are sins against ourselves and our new nature. And the Holy Spirit doesn't want us to hurt this way. You know, we can clutch a carver's knife in our hands, 
very tightly and we will eventually be hurt by it. And I think that's what we're doing. I think that that's just where our nation is right now, maybe where our world is. But the promise of the Holy Spirit on this day of Pentecost is to offer us something beautiful and better and healing, a beautiful reprieve, because we are to make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And that is what I've just said, is the law. So let it crush us. Let it crush us and drive us back to Christ. I think it's time to repent of the divisive evil in our world and in our hearts and to turn toward the magnetic spirit of God who draws us to the heart of Christ. So if we have sinned over the last year via email, I think it's time to ask forgiveness of that person via email for doing so. And by the way, today, not tomorrow. Don't wait. If we've sinned in our speech, make a phone call and undo that damage. If we've sinned on social media, let's stop posting anything controversial. Instead, just photos of kittens for you, like for a year. Yeah. Because whether we like it or not, and I hope we grow to like it, the eternal reality is this, that there is no Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, that all are one in Christ Jesus. And that unity is the thing that will carry on past the Jordan. So it's best to get used to it now. Friends, the thing that unites us all, well, the two things that unite us all, need and love. We are in profoundest need, and we have been loved in our need. So may we all be lured into, seduced into, and drawn into a renewed Pentecostal magnetism. Amen. They took your life. They could not take your breath.